Hello, faith community, and welcome to Reading Through the New Testament in a Year. We find ourselves today in Revelation chapter 3. And as I get into Revelation chapter 3, I want you to sort of have a, a working understanding of what it is that we're reading. In Revelation 2 and 3, we have letters to the churches. And in these letters to the churches, Jesus is telling John to take a letter to historical churches that existed when Revelation was written. These churches had specific issues that, that Jesus is telling John to address, but even though these churches are specific historical churches, we can still learn lessons from them today. Just like we can read the letter to the church at Ephesus or to Corinth, we can read Ephesians, we can read Corinthians, and we can gain lessons from them because what we see is that the problems that the church had in the first century are the same problems the church has now. And that's why at the end of every single letter, you see this phrase. Um, Revelation 3.6 says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So he writes a, a letter to this church, but then at the end he says, Listen to what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And then the same thing at the end of verse 13, at the end of verse 22, that phrase is repeated because there's something for all of us to learn from each of these letters to the churches. So let's start with the first letter, the letter to the church at Sardis. This is in 3, 1 through 6, and Sardis is the dead church. This church is a church that has no more life in it. This is something to be on our guard against. So he starts out, verse 1, right to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but are dead. So he starts out by talking about who it is, the specific attributes of Christ that he wants to communicate to the church. And so what he says right here is the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, the seven spirits of God isn't saying that there's seven different Holy Spirits. It's describing the Holy Spirit in his fullness. In Isaiah 11:2, it describes the Holy Spirit in seven different ways. It says this, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So you have these, these seven descriptions of the spirit in Isaiah 11:2. The fullness of the spirit is behind this message to the church at Sardis. This is a way of saying, pay attention, listen, the one who's sending this to you is the God on high. So what does he tell the church at Sardis? In, in verse 2 of Revelation chapter 3, he says, Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. This is not the kind of letter you want to hear um, from God. Um, he explains to them they need to be alert. They need to strengthen what remains. Now, the, the word for alert right here is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 and in Matthew 26 to encourage the disciples to be ready for his return. It means to watch, to give strict attention to. It means to take heed lest through remission some destructive calamity suddenly overtakes someone. Now, what's interesting about the historical city of Sardis is twice Sardis had enemies 
attack them and conquer them. And what's amazing about that is the way that Sardis was situated, it was pretty much impossible to defeat. There was these these steep cliffs, and the people in Sardis didn't think that anybody could ever scale these cliffs, scale these walls, get inside to them. And because of that, they grew lackadaisical. They were not vigilant. And twice they were conquered because they weren't even watching the walls because they didn't think anybody could come in. This is what's happening. This is sort of analogous to what's happening in the church at Sardis. They're not staying alert. They're not paying attention. So how do we respond? We respond with alertness. One of the major messages of the book of Revelation is be alert, be ready, be watchful. Listen to James. In James 5, 7, James tells us, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Christ's return is imminent. How imminent? He's standing at the door. We need to be patient because we don't know when it's going to happen, but we need to be vigilant because it's going to happen soon. We need to be a people who are always living in light of Jesus' imminent returns. And what happened in Sardis is they forgot about that. They forgot to live in light of Jesus' imminent return. And so in verse 3, the message goes, Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. I want you to notice that the kind of repentance that Jesus is telling them they need to have is a remembrance. Remember what you have received and repent. I want you to understand that forgetfulness is something to repent of. When you find that you've wandered away from Jesus, you've forgotten the fullness that you've received, you've forgotten the grace that's been poured out on you, repent of your forgetfulness. Repent of your lack of remembrance. These people, This church is a church that's walking around in a daze, and this letter is meant to wake them up. In verse 4 he says, You have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. Something I want you to understand, this church is dead, but there's still saints there. There's still people who are living for God, even in the midst of a dead church. And so if you're listening to this today and you're looking around at the church that surrounds you and you're seeing some of these attributes of Sardis, don't believe that that defines you. You can be a living saint in the middle of of a dead church. In verse 5, he says, In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. He makes this promise repeatedly in his letters to the one who conquers. And when you hear that, I don't want you to think this is an impossible task. I want you to remember that those who walk in the Spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, are more than conquerors. You have what you need to live the life that Christ is calling you to. He's filled you up with strength. So be alert, be 
watchful. The next letter is the letter to the church at Philadelphia, and this church is a faithful church. You can see that this is a church that's being persecuted, but is standing strong in the midst of that persecution. Verse 7, he says, Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. Jesus wants the church at Philadelphia to understand he is the one who rules. He is in control. He is the one who opens and closes. And his authority, his control, his power is the only one they need to be concerned with. You see, they have those who are opposing them, those who are trying to shut heaven's door in their face. There's Jews who are telling the Christians in Philadelphia, you're not true believers, you're not getting into heaven. And Jesus wants them to know The Jews aren't the one who opened the door for you. I am. He says this in verse 8, I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus lets them know, the door I have opened, people can't close. No one can close this door for you. You have the power to walk through it. And the reason they have the power, it's not in themselves. It's because they have the Word of God abiding in them. They've kept His Word, and they have not denied His name. In the face of this persecution, the, the, the challenge that's coming against them as the persecuted church is they're requiring them to deny Christ, deny that Jesus is the Messiah. And this church is refusing And in the turmoil of persecution, they need this message from Jesus to know, the door I've opened, persecution cannot close. Those who say lies about your salvation cannot affect your eternal security. Look at verse 9. He says this, Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you've kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. You know, when you're being oppressed upon this earth and you're lying at the feet of your oppressor, it's encouraging to know that those oppressors one day are going to bow down and acknowledge that your faith was genuine, that your belief was real. The persecution is not forever. It's a slight and momentary affliction, and it's important for us to know for all times that those who rise up against us one day will acknowledge us as the ones who followed the truth. And Jesus writes to the church at Philadelphia to let them know their oppressors will one day see the truth. And he also gives them another promise. He lets them know that because they endure, they won't have to see the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole world. They will not have to see the great tribulation. Jesus will bring them home before that. In verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Our ability to endure is based on our understanding of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Jesus can return at any minute, and what that means is I can endure for another minute. What that means is when I'm facing the trial, I can keep going because Jesus could come back at any minute. That helps me to endure in the midst of the trial the imminence of Christ. The the events that 
are supposed to precede his return. If we read through Matthew 24, we see all these events, and Jesus says these things are going to happen, and then the end's going to come. But there are earthquakes, famines, political upheaval. Those things are constantly happening. Those things that precede his return are constantly in process, which means at any time he can come back. In verse 12, he says, The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Jesus is letting the church at Philadelphia know that they have a special place in heaven. As those who faithfully endure, those who do not waver, they're going to be pillars in the temple. They're going to dwell steadfast in the presence of God forever. The next church in chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, is the church at Laodicea. And this is the, the lukewarm church. He says this, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. So what the church at Laodicea needs to understand about the one who's writing to them is that it's Jesus Christ, the Word. The Word made flesh. Jesus is the Word by which everything that was made was made. He is the Word that originated life, and He is the Word that will be the final arbiter, the final judge on life. When Jesus was teaching in his earthly ministry, he said in John 12, 48, the one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus is the first word and the final word, and the church at Laodicea needs to understand that. Why? Because they're lukewarm because they're not living for Jesus. In verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. A church does not want to hear that they're going to be vomited out of the mouth of God. But why is that? It's because they're lukewarm. What does it look like for a church to be lukewarm? It looks like a church that's simply going through the motions. Now, on the outside, it looks like they're doing, they're, they're checking all the Christian boxes, but it's simple ritual. It's not spirit-filled. It's not spirit-enlivened. It's not spirit-empowered activity. It's ritualistic activity. Automization has, re has replaced spirit-filled activity. These are people who simply go through the motions. And in verse 17, he says, For you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so you may be rich, white clothes so you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so you may see. You need to understand this. The lukewarm church has grown complacent in their sanctification. They have the attitude of not needing anything from God. They are good where they're at. Christians always have a zeal to progress in their sanctification. Christians are never satisfied with where they're at. They're always longing to look more like Jesus. David says in the Psalms, I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. The church at Laodicea was fine with looking like themselves. 
This is not acceptable. And this is what a lukewarm church looks like. It doesn't want to advance. It doesn't want to grow. It doesn't want to challenge. It doesn't want to stretch. It wants everybody to be fat and happy where they're at. It doesn't want to stir the pot. It doesn't want to convict the saints. This is the lukewarm church. These are people who, instead of running the race that's set before him, are sitting on the sidelines. And what does he say? He says they need to recognize that they're poor, pitiable, blind. You see, when we recognize our lostness and our need for a Savior, that need never goes away. Paul tells the church at Galatia, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? You can't go on in your sanctification through your own strength, through your own resources. You constantly have need of I salve, of him clothing you, of his treasure. You cannot purchase, you cannot have these things on your own. You need him, the saints that recognize their need, make up the true church. The church at Laodicea was a church filled up with people who didn't believe they needed God. The church that's living is a church that's constantly acknowledge, acknowledging we need you, we need you, we need you. Every hour we need you. There's never a moment where we are not desperate for you. We're walking in abject dependence. And not only that, but true saints in a true church practices repentance. There never comes a day where there's no more need of repentance. If anyone says he has no sin, he's deceiving himself. The truth is not in him. We constantly are needing to repent. We're not continuing in sin. When we recognize the sin, what do we do? We turn away from that. The church at Laodicea is continuing in that. They're living complacently in that. And he says this in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's imperative. If you're a believer and you feel convicted by the Spirit, listen to that voice. Respond to that voice. Respond to that chastening. Understand whom the Lord loves, he chastens. When you're sitting in the church and you hear the sermon and it's convicting you, that's not me convicting you as your pastor. That's a spirit convicting you. Listen up. Pay attention. Respond to him. Change what needs to be changed. And he doesn't just speak to his people through the, the preaching of the word, but he speaks to the people through the saints opening up their mouths and considering each other how to stir each other up to love and good works. And as we gather together, this is why we don't forsake the assembling. We gather together and what happens? We receive a knowledge of sin from each other, from those conversations where we're considering how to stir each other up to love and good works. And what happens to the person who hears that, who realizes they're walking in sin and ignores it? They are in danger. Hebrews 10.26 says, If we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Did you hear that? If we deliberately go on sinning, our brothers and sisters, the pastor is preaching and we feel convicted. And instead of responding to that, we continue in it. We're in a dangerous place. We're living like the Laodiceans. We're lukewarm and we're loving it. And that's the most dangerous place to be. Because the person who continues in that has no hope. 
The person who continues in their sin has no hope of salvation. You see, Christians aren't perfect, but Christians, when they're convicted of their sin, they ultimately repent of that. And here's the good news. At the end of this, he says in verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. There's still hope that people in the church at Laodicea and churches like it can hear and repent. And that's why Hebrews 10, 26, and 27 is written. It's not written so that people will stand condemned. It's written so that they'll repent before it's too late. And it's too late when you stop breathing. It's too late when you're standing before the judgment seat. It's too late when this life is over or when Christ returns. So be vigilant. You don't know the day or the hour. If you're convicted of sin, understand repentance is as near to you as your lips. Confess Jesus as Lord. Repent of your sins. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You do not need to live like the Laodiceans, heat up that passion that once burned hot in your soul. Listen to Jesus. He's standing at the door. If anyone will hear, let him listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. These three churches have something for us today. Both corporately, the church needs to be on its guard against falling into the trap of the church at Sardis, which was dead, Laodicea, which was lukewarm, and it needs to follow the example of the faithful church at Philadelphia. And individually, we need to be on our guard against any of these attributes being true in our own life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I hope you're listening. I hope you're responding to the word of God. Thank you so much for listening today. God bless. Mm-hmm.